And so when people lose it and they're saying, how can nature be racist? That's not true. You can go outside. It's like, you well, well yeah, you, you can go outside. Yes, you can go to a landscape. <laughs> However, do you feel safe there? No. Do you have access to it? Did you know that your communities were the ones who said, we don't want any black or brown people of color? And we say, oh, well, that's in the past. Well, this is what we're living in today. We're living in the current past because of people who have decided to designate those neighborhoods to have high rates of environmental contamination. Welcome to Conversations with Animals. My name is Juliana and I'm your host. On this show, we talk to people who view animals as integral to our place here on earth and ask questions about who animals are to us and the ways that we can imagine new futures together. We take a close look at our own animal nature and question the structures and systems in our lives. I'm so glad you're here. I am so grateful to bring our first guest of season three to you and to also be launching our move from MailChimp over to Substack. So if you haven't already heard, you can now find conversations with animals at animal.julianaroth.com. Please join us there. There's a ton of free stuff and there will also be some paid content that will go even deeper. And as always, the podcast is free. The monthly letter is free. And I am really excited to get to introduce to you, if you don't already know, Isaiah Hernandez, who is more commonly known by his moniker Queer Brown Vegan. And that's where you can find him across all independent media platforms and where he began sharing environmental education with worldwide audiences. He's been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Vogue. He's presented for Harvard, Nike, and at Billie Eilish's Overheated Summit. He's based in Los Angeles, where he works full-time as a content creator, public speaker, and of course, as a dog daddy. Uh, So I'm gonna hand it over to Isaiah to tell us a little bit more about his work and to have a conversation together about animals. My name is Isaiah Hernandez. I'm an environmental media creator um, known on the moniker Queer Brown Vegan, and I'm based currently in Los Angeles, California. I was just going to read quickly the section from your website where you talk about your experience landscaping in Los Angeles um, and how your job was really to remove weeds. (laughs) And the weeds became this metaphor of your own queerness and identity that was being repressed. And so the section goes, dandelions are sacred yet seen as hindrances. Any mushroom was seen as deadly, poisonous, and a representation of toxicity, but I saw it as a system that recycles and removes toxicity from life. The fauna were seen as pests, and I was forced to spray harmful chemicals to remove them when they only tried to find their way back home. So I was wondering if you could take us back to that image and that moment and um, what your early relationships were with the environment as this almost antagonistic relationship. Absolutely. So my introduction around environmentalism started from very young age. So, you know, I grew up in an environmental community that didn't have access to, you know, parks, for example, and living in poverty really shapes individuals experiences in the ways that they believe themselves of having access to resources. So um, my father being, you know, an undocumented immigrant that was working a lot during, you know, those times in the 2000s and 2010s, 
um, he was working as a landscape gardener. And traditionally here in LA or in other states, many of the people who are doing these um, lawns for affluent homes are typically people who are immigrants. And so he would take me and my brother when I was a teenager, because he's like, okay, you're older now, you can start coming with work for me. So I don't, I can reduce my cost to hire someone I can hire within my family. He would take me and my brother and I was only 12 or 13 at the time. My brother is only two years older. So he's 15, 16. And, you know, we what I would remember very vividly is that when you enter these like very affluent neighborhoods in L.A., you can see the dimensions of the house being bigger from the lawns being bigger to having access to like public resources, libraries, sc um, schools, um, green parks. You know, I started to recognize like, wow, these communities have so much things around here. And it's wild to me that many of the communities that live here feel so isolated, yet see often see themselves as only separate from their communities. So when we'd enter these homes, you know, obviously, you know, we would never enter inside. We'd always either be inside or in the back. And you know, my father always advised us to go to the bathroom beforehand and that, you know, we won't be able to go to the bathroom until after six hours of working. So we were very respectful of people's homes. And I remember like, you know, when we were given tasks to do, my dad was the one that would communicate with the owner and then the owner would tell my dad what he wanted. So my dad would delegate those tasks. Me and my dad had a very rough relationship because I think my dad was really not much the emotional supportive individual that he was. <laughs> I think that for many men, they really, really struggle with practicing healthy masculinity. And so for me, if I were to voice a concern around my dad telling him that I don't feel well or I mentally I feel exhausted, he would be like, there's no such thing as being tired. And so I think there was this disvalidation already that as a teenager in middle school and high school, I was already dealing with this internal battle of my identity. So entering an environment that's already privileged and unknown to me, yet also being in a, a place where my father was working with, where he didn't want to hear anything about me, I often felt like, you know, how do we disassociate as a society? And so my disassociation came from the fact that when I was around these flana, flora, and fungi, I saw them as a living being. I saw them, they're living systems, as you can say. And so when you talk to a tree, when you talk to the grass, when you talk to the water, it's not an insane thing. I mean, indigenous communities have told us that those are all living elements and guardians that have existed for eons. So for me, I, I started seeing it as a way of like green therapy for me because I couldn't talk to my sibling about it. I couldn't talk to my dad about it. I couldn't talk to my friends about it. So as I was struggling to find my identity, I found that when I was given tasks to delete all of these ex additive species that were not seen in the uniformity American lawn structure, I saw that as a way of these species are trying to revolt against these norms. And so I kind of felt a very deep, deep sorrow within those species because I often felt that I'm also contributing to their deletion of their livelihoods. And I thought about myself seeing the fact that in American society in the ways that we've grown in very heteronormative culture, I'm also being suppressed and slammed and almost being in essence flattened from this, from this world. And so I felt like, how do I find myself through this? And that was through actually grieving. Yeah. And that's something that is also like we try to squash down as a culture, right? It's interesting that 
you're talking about this space of grief when you're talking about the wildness of the environment or the diversity of the environment, because I think for a lot of people, grief is this very unwieldy emotion that we do want to tame because of its discomfort. Yeah. And I think that for any individual, any human, like you would feel bad ripping out a flower from a lawn just because it's seen as invasive or not invasive, but it's seen as a hindrance. It's not seen as as valued compared to the other flowers that are around the homes. However, I do think there's also this like power dynamic that exists, right? Like in nature, everything is diverse and like everything grows within chaos and wildness, right? Here in America, we're very taught in this uniformity structure that everything needs to be monoculture in order to uphold to the standard values of what an American home should look like. And so I always, always struggled with this idea of like, what does even home conceptually look like for people who already grow up in poverty, but people who don't even feel safe for who they are in their own quote unquote homes. Yeah. And, and it's something that I've seen you write about before, post about before the the displacement that happens within the climate crisis too. So there's, um, you know, the geopolitical reasons, but then also the the future, right? And, and the present of, um, as the climate shifts, who's going to be the ones who have to respond to that first? Yeah, no. And I think that's with environmental racism, or you would call it climate injustice or environmental injustice. These are very shaped with this notion that, we are not saying that nature is racist, right? We are we are nature too, but when we talk about like, if you want to separate quote unquote nature and talk about the trees and the land, the <laughs> trees are not racist. The trees are not preventing people from entering areas. They're not saying you can't enter because you're black or brown person of color. It's the people who have influenced policy and practices that are in fact racist that ensure the upholding of segregationist policies and also other harmful policies that would cause it. And the very famous tangible example I was used is redlining. So when we talk about redlining, we're talking about, okay, communities that are historically in areas where there's high rates of environmental contamination, but also high rates of poverty, lack of access to educational resources, medical care. And so we ask ourselves, well, how did we get here, right? Veterans were promised loans in order to get if they serve in the war. Now, when they got back from the war, banks were giving these loans. However, many communities that were often white and affluent that wanted to continue upholding segregation were saying, we actually don't want any black or brown people of color living in these houses. So they worked with realtor companies, they worked with the local city governments, and they worked with the banks to threaten them and say, if you give this money out to people, we will leave this neighborhood. So of course, these um, community, these like institutions were then forced to give them loans, only adhering to certain areas of um, houses that they can buy in. And also, they were not allowed to buy um, houses in those areas, or they were upsold even higher prices to, um, you know, to make sure that they didn't buy those houses and give them to more affordable rates to white veterans. And so the issue around this idea of like, what came first, the chicken or the egg, it's like, what came first, the, the poor community or the toxic facility, regardless if the toxic facility came first, or regardless if the poor community came first, it should be a, a citizen right for everyone that no one should live in a poison environment, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, identity. Like if we're talking about in a very apolitical sense, like the fact that we, if we were to really uphold those standards, and that means all of us would have access to resources. However, 
we can know that due to those policies and practices that prevented, and those are spe there are specific people behind those uh, practices that help push it, we can say this is in a form of environmental racism. And so when people lose it and they're saying, how can nature be racist? That's not true. You can go outside. It's like, well, yeah, you, you can go outside. Yes, you can go to a landscape. <laughs> However, do you feel safe there? No. Do you have access to it? Did you know that your communities were the ones who said, we don't want any black or brown people of color? And we say, oh, well, that's in the past. Well, this is what we're living in today. We're living in the current past because of people who have decided to designate those neighborhoods to have high rates of environmental contamination. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many things in there I want to I want to talk more about. The first is just the fact that you're including cities in this, because a lot of people hear environmental activism or climate change, and they're like, if they live in a city, uh, they don't feel like it's going to impact them or that they even have an environment. So to bring this, the idea of redlining, to bring the idea of just having an an environment with like safe air, um, access to certain green spaces. Um, how do you see people in cities in general responding to your work? Like, do they have epiphany moments of like, oh, I didn't even realize it was impacting me already? I think it's the realization that people have always had those thoughts, but were never able to formulate the words eloquently or mm -hmm. correctly in their mind. And I feel that it's really good for me to be able to say, that this is how I communicate. However, the way that you're going to communicate is going to look very different than me. So please validate yourself first. Give yourself <laughs> round of applause for thinking about those things. But second is the fact that I think it empowers the individual about their lived experiences. Because when I heard the term environmental justice and environmental racism, I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like, what is that? And I started to recognize like, oh, like your zip code, um, you know, up to 60% of your zip code um, is determined by environmental factors. So like 30% is only encountered like genetics. So like, of course, like there's genetic diseases that run in families, but you can get poison in your own environment and that contributes to 60% of your health. And so I started to then recognize like when I had the language and the wording correctly, it validated me that, oh, it's not just in my head. It wasn't the fact that I grew up in poverty that I believed and thought this is this, I deserve to live in this environment because my parents didn't work hard and they did. And, you know, a lot of people did in their own past lives and their ancestors, but, you know, I didn't work in that. And so I recognized like with those wordings, I was able to add true feelings to how I was feeling. Okay. Yeah. The, the language is so important. And um, another thing I really love about your work is there is such an attention to naming and language. And um, I was curious to hear how you got involved in creating your symbiocene symbio <laughs> uh, events and why that word in particular was so resonant with you. Yeah, so the symbiocene was coined by environmental philosopher, Dr. Glenn Albrecht to basically represent the new scene of what we're entering. So like traditionally Anthropocene is defined as the human developmental period or the, the um, timeline in which emissions have risen due to quote unquote human activity. Now what the Anthropocene kind of represents is this notion of yes, through industrialization, we were able to develop all these quite technologies and developments in societies under the under the suppression of global south countries and so when the symbiocene actually came into event because we hosted it both in london and new york city um me and my friend that co-created the symbiocene event 
we really wanted to t- we really wanted to kind of create an event that wasn't focused on the future of climate activism or the future of youth or climate and art. We really wanted to create a unique programming that pushes the boundaries against different notions of topics that would introduce different people in the ways that we talk about environmentalism, whether that was through philosophy, whether that's through AI, data, whether that's through storytelling, whether that's through music, through dance. Like we really wanted to really reintegrate the environmental space to actually have more culture, more diversity. And so the symbiocene represents the era in which um, during the ecologies of collapse or what we're seeing as, um, you know, ecosystems collapsing, we are also seeing the emergence of symbiotic relationships of humans and individuals working together to kind of create a more regenerative just movement. But it also follows the history of the of resistance of movements that have always followed. So to say that in the Anthropocene, we were symbiotic um, is, is true because indigenous communities have always been true. However, the dominant Western culture, when I mean dominant, I mean the more um, you know, industrialized, capitalistic, the ones, the 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 the, the era that we're currently navigating and where it's very rooted in consumerism, we can tell that it's very rooted in individualism. So even young people today um, face the loneliness epidemic. I mean, a lot of young people have told me they feel lonely. They feel like it's really hard to make new friends today, even with the post, like in the pandemic, like it has accelerated to the point where individuals feel so powerless and not feel connected to a community. And so we wanted to create the symbiocene to really um, emphasize that you do have a voice, you do have the power and you do have your humanity that's with you. That's more than enough to keep your story alive. And so we wanted to create um, a safe space around that. And it's been really successful, um, the past two events from both the um, London event to New York event, and hopefully next year when we have it again. Part of the capitalist dream, right, is to separate us and to have the individualism. Um, And I know that that's something you've critiqued in other activists or even scholarly movements right is when there is too much of an emphasis on the individual or ownership and how that can we we can almost like replicate the harms we're seeking to eradicate (laughs) when we do that yeah yeah and i think there's the notion of um, human supremacy is often thrown out where i tell people like yes it is true within the anthropocene you can see that due to industrialization and human activity we have increased emissions however when we talk about who has caused the most emissions, we need to be honest that it's not people from the global south that are causing the most emissions. In fact, it is found that you know around 10 billion or trillion um, USD is drained annually from the global south of their natural resources that we use today here in our in our culture. So I, I do think that it's always important that when we talk about the framings of things, I always say like. It is industrialized, capitalistic, white supremacist culture that is draining us because when we think about human supremacy, that influences a lot of conservative or right-wing groups that already have harbor and anger towards migrants to say, that's right, it is migrants who are taking my natural resources. Instead of seeing it as a larger systemic issue, the people that are being displaced and moving to a lot of global North countries is because a lot of global North governments have decentralized their economies and their governmental structures that have forced them to leave. And now they are the ones that are saying, well, what do we do? Because you're the ones that got involved in our country. Yeah. Yeah, it is a very tangled web. Yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, you've kind of already spoken to us a little bit, but also in your name, right, is um is vegan. It's like the other part that we haven't spoken to yet. And I think, um, you know, I've been stopped eating meat when I was really young, when I learned about 
where it came from. And I would just be curious to hear how veganism sort of emerged into your practice. Like, was it there from the beginning or is that something that as you learn more, you adopted that life? Yeah, I think with veganism for me specifically, like I, I went back in 2018 I was an environmental science student at the time at Berkeley. And I remember taking a food systems class and we learned about industrialized food. And I was just like, it's so unsustainable from the emission standpoint, from the human rights standpoint, from the animal rights standpoint. But I think that the vegan component just came from the fact that like, I do believe that what we do consume does have choice to divest from the larger exploitative system. And so even though a lot of people are saying like, you know, the vegan movement has a lot of issues with racism, lack of intersectionality, the acknowledgement of white supremacy, which is so true and it's true today. Um, I think veganism is more for me as through a philosophical standpoint, like I see it as an additive towards liberation. So like when we talk about human liberation, animal liberation, I think that everyone practices animal liberation, regardless if you're vegan or not. Now it's on a spectrum, whether or not we recognize that spectrum. And for me, I would say that going vegan allowed me to understand like, longer the importance of animal liberation however for indigenous communities who may not be vegan and have much more of a deeper understanding towards animals and humans that they may be longer than me and they're they're in understanding liberation i think that's just my viewpoint that I, because i choose to live in an urban city that's industrialized food market i might as well go vegan and that's something where it's like i have the access i have the economic things i have the time for it now i i think when we were trying to be very reductionist and be like and everyone go vegan it's like I don't like those questions because it really it's so nuanced where it's like it really depends on the individual and urban communities versus rural communities but I do believe that it is a right for a lot of people to just learn about the principles of liberation and understand that like yeah like maybe you can reduce your meat maybe you can start to ask more critical questions maybe you can start to say like is meat really needed in our industrialized economy right now? Like it's, those are the things where I want people to start asking themselves critically because I feel that the 2010 vegan movement was based on preaching and, you know, the vegan memes. And to be honest, like I always tell my friends, like I am, I, the most movement that I'm typically tired of is both the climate and the, <laughs> and, the and the vegan movement because the mm -hmm. vegan movement hasn't really evolved from its stances. It's still rooted mm -hmm. in racism, white supremacy and, the same people are using the same recycled jokes around veganism. And I'm just like, we got to really move past this, y'all. Like, this is not doing us any, any favor anymore. Like, it's not. People look at us like we're insane. And I'm like, I agree. I see now why we we're seen that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. Um, and to think about the different cultural relationships with food and animals. Um, it's a whole other episode, right? <laughs> but <Yeah>. I'm just... <laughs> But I am curious because, you know, personally, I debated for a while, even about the name of the podcast, to use the word animal, um, because I struggle with even saying like human, non-human, because I feel like it can imply a hierarchy there too, um, like human, non-human animals. So I decided just to to like use that umbrella as a way to like try to think more broadly about like what we think of when we think of animal. Um, and so I was curious to hear more your thoughts on that, especially with um, the idea of, of queerness in like in other species, right? So I know that was another piece of yours I really enjoyed was reading about um, 
thinking of our environment as like inherently queer <laughs> um, and other species as as having observable queerness, right? So um, yeah, how did you, was that part of like your own evolution of like thinking about the environment or like when did you start thinking about these questions of like how other species um, behave? Yeah, I think it was in my wildlife ecology class when I was in college studying environmental science. It was really interesting because the professor is obviously like a straight man. He was saying we were introducing like what a harem relationship is. And I was like a harem or like a polyamorous <laughs> relationship. And I was like, why does it sound so much like human society? But then you find out actually that even within animal species, like one male will have multiple female partners, um, you know, and that that was like the really the introduction. But then he was saying like, yeah, there's also same I guess what you what people say is same sex species relationships which is not really explained a lot in science or people just see it like you know the animal kingdom does not unalive each other for being queer and in fact it's actually just like an it's a natural behavior it's like a shared thing so I think obviously like I don't want to conflate either um, gender as the same thing with animals because I did in the past and I did get corrected on it that it is important to note that um you know, what are gender identities based on social cultural norms? Animal kingdoms do not prescribe to the social cultural norms that we live in as humans. And so I, I think on my end, when I started learning about sex, species, and diversity, and obviously like, there's a lot of problematic between biology of like what makes male, female species, um, I, I started to realize like, wow, there's one mushroom that has like thousands of species, like 60,000 species, like 60,000 sex species. And I didn't even know that existed. I just thought <laughs> male or woman, you know, like I literally thought that, so I, I think that for a lot of queer people, they use queer ecology as like a metaphorical standpoint. I do think that, you know, it, from when I, what I've been really challenging in my own work is like, you know, perhaps in the future, there'll be a time when we don't even need to use the term queer or LGBTQ because it's just an, it's a, it's just a part of our humanity. However, I do think that why the reason why we prescribe to it so much right now and people get mad at us is because we're not still seen as humans. We're not still seen as part of the ecosystem. We're still otherized. And that's the issue where it's like, perhaps it is true that perhaps we don't need to use animals as examples of queer ecology. And perhaps we don't need to even use our own human culture as an example of queer queer ecology and that these concepts eventually um, evolve out or emerge out into a different ascending level. But for now, we, we, we cling on to them as ways to ensure the validity of our identities and livelihoods. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautifully said. I think I love that holding that vision for the future of a time where we don't need <laughs> to name, you yeah. know, these things are just inherently understood by everyone. Um, so I, before we close, um, I know we spoke a little bit about it with your, the events that you run, but, um, do you feel that you are a climate optimist that you feel like even with all of the destruction that you witness and write about that you feel like we, it's inevitable that we learn to live, um, in more a symbiotic relationship with the land? Yeah, I think for people just trying to really live more symbiotically, it's just really practicing the concept of mindfulness that comes from Buddhism. Like, I don't think that a lot of people need to do radical changes on like, go vegan or like, go recycle <laughs> your waste. It's like, half the people listening probably like, I don't, I mean, I do those things or whatever. Like, I, I'm interested. I, I really think it's about reconnecting with the elements around your neighborhood. Like, 
taking morning walks has been so therapeutic for me to like not have any headphones, listen to the wind, listen to the trips of the bird, listen to the noisy, um, you know, cars beeping in LA. Like, you know, these are all examples of you actually sound mapping your place. And I, I do think that there are ways for all of us to get into symbiotic relationships. And that's just like creating networks of friendships for people that's easy to be made for some people. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And um, how can people stay in touch with you if they want to get more involved with your work? And, um, and also, do you have anything coming up that you want to share? Yeah, you can get you can follow me at queerboundvegan.com. And I'm actually producing two independent web series. One's called Teaching Climate Together. and The other one's called Sustainable Jobs. And I have episode two for Teaching Climate Together coming out very soon. And then Sustainable Jobs episode one coming out very soon too. So really excited to um, showcase you all that. Great. So yeah, we'll definitely share that. Um, I'll keep an eye out for it. Um, but thank you so much. It's been really lovely speaking with you and I'm excited about all the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for listening and be sure to join the Substack community by going to animal.julianaroth.com.